Hey, listeners, this is Spencer Brudig. I'm here with Reed Redman and Will Johnson. Before we get into today's episode, you both have a new show coming out Wednesday, August 18th. Yeah, we sure do. Thanks, Spencer. Uh, it's called Strangeville. And as you might imagine with a title like that, we are covering strange crimes. Right, Reed? Yeah, yeah. Just the strangest of the strange. I still can't believe some of the episodes we put together are things that actually happened. And, and Will, you're going to be hosting it, right? I, I am hosting the show. Reed and I have both done a lot of work to find some really wild stories across the country that you'll be hearing all about over the next several months. Uh, so we're really excited about it. It's a little bit of a departure from True Crime Chronicles or our daily show, The Daily Crime. Uh, Reed, you want to give a snapshot of one of the stories that we're covering? Yeah, our first story right out of the gate. Uh, it starts with a tiger on the loose. Uh, and I don't want to give away what exactly happens from there, but I will say like that is the tame beginning to a, a story that just gets more and more bizarre from there. So check out Strangeville wherever you listen to podcasts again, launching uh, Wednesday, August 18th. Spencer, I'll throw it back to you in today's episode. This is a Vault Studios production. I'm Reed Redmond. I'm Spencer Brudig. I'm Will Johnson. This show contains graphic material and is meant for mature audiences. This week on True Crime Chronicles. This is a story that goes back all the way to 1958 and to the disappearance of a 10-year-old boy named Bobby Bizzop, who vanished from a Catholic summer camp run by the Archdiocese of Denver in the Rocky Mountains northwest of the city. This week on True Crime Chronicles. We travel just outside of Denver, Colorado, to a picturesque Catholic summer camp called Camp St. Malo. Even in the late 1950s, it had been operated by the Archdiocese for decades. Investigative reporter for Nine News in Denver, Colorado, Kevin Vaughn, picks up the story. Set in a beautiful mountain valley, uh, you know, lush forest all around it, streams running through it. Um, it had a horseback riding stable and it had uh, a craft shop and there was an archery range and a shooting range and a swimming hole and um, boys would go there in the summer for a week at a time. They'd go on a Sunday and stay until the following Saturday and they would hike in Rocky Mountain National Park which butted up against the west side of the camp and they would, you know, shoot guns and swim in the swimming hole and have bonfires and sing and it was it was a very popular destination for Catholic boys uh, in the 1950s. Um, every week, uh, be somewhere between 75 and 100 boys would come to the camp, and um, some of them came more than once. And Bobby Bizzop was one of those kids who went more than once. He went uh, a total of five times in 1957 and 1958, each time for a week. So he spent, you know, more than 30 days there over those two summers. But in August of 1958, Camp St. Malo is thrown into terror and chaos on the final Friday of the camp season when Bobby Bizup vanishes without a trace. And the story that was told at the time was that he'd been out fishing with some other kids and that um, a counselor had let him know that it was time to come down to the main lodge uh, to get supper and that when uh, the other boys and the counselor got down to the main lodge and, and got ready for dinner, they realized Bobby wasn't with them. And they launched a search uh, that night with counselors at the camp. And that search stretched into a, a massive undertaking over the ensuing weeks. They had uh, helicopters and airplanes in the air. They had hundreds of people searching on the ground. They brought in bloodhounds and... Um, 
they found no trace of, of Bobby Bizup in that, uh, in that initial search in 1958. As time went on, and summer became fall, and fall became winter, the searches began to become increasingly difficult. And as the temperature in the Rockies reached freezing, official searches stopped altogether. Tragically, only one person continued the search effort, Bobby's father. Uh, who was a master sergeant in the Air Force stationed in Denver. And he would um, take evenings and on weekends, he would head up to Camp St. Malo and he would wander the woods uh, and hills alone looking for his only child. Bobby was born almost completely deaf. He used hearing aids and could speak, but he mostly communicated by reading lips and through signing. So he vanished. It was a big news story at the time. It was in the newspapers in Denver, day after day, updates on the search. There were false reports that he'd been seen in Estes Park, which was about 10 miles from the camp. There had been suggestions that he'd run away on purpose. There had been questions raised about whether he was hiding in the woods and purposely avoiding the searchers. Um, And so as 1958 ended, this was just a mystery. Um, There was no explanation for what had happened to him. Camp St. Malo was staffed by counselors who were in the process of studying to become priests. There were between seven and ten counselors at any given time, leading the boys in the adventures of the camp. Although Bobby's disappearance was still a mystery, the camp returned the following summer in 1959. Three of the camp counselors led an expedition of boys on a hike up neighboring Mount Meeker. Looms just west of the camp. It's a dramatic, you know, 13,000 foot. It's actually within Rocky Mountain National Park. You, if you're if you're down in the camp or anywhere in the valley, you look up and it just looms, um, you know, tall and and dominates the the skyline to the west there. So this counselor was leading these boys on this hike up the mountain, and he came across a bone and a scrap of clothing. And he figured out pretty quickly, at least he suspected pretty quickly, that this was uh, the remains of Bobby Bizup. And so he and the other counselors took the boys back down to camp. Eventually, they reported it to the authorities, and... um, a search party was established, and they went back up to that area, and they ended up recovering a whole bunch of bones um, and some clothing, some scraps of material, and a really important clue, which was a, a battery for a hearing aid. Um, and based on all of that, um, authorities concluded that uh, you know these were the remains of Bobby Bizup. Um, and so they gathered what remains they found. They did not find the skull. They did not find some of the other um, bones, but they but they gathered the remains they had and brought them down the mountain, and uh, they were turned over to the Boulder County Coroner's Office, and ultimately Bobby was interred at Fort Logan National Cemetery in Denver because his dad was, as I said, a member of the Air Force. So with Bobby's remains in hand... And assuming he got lost and died of exposure, there was no real follow-up investigation. It was just chalked up as a, um, you know, as a tragic accident. A boy who got lost in the woods and then succumbed in the elements. Um, One of the things that, um, you know, that was done at the time was there was no real 
autopsy done or no examination of the bones to try to determine um, if this could have been something else. And his death certificate lists the cause of death as probably from exhaustion and exposure. So, you know, it was the best guess of the authorities at the time. And and uh, it was a sad story and uh, it was covered, you know, pretty extensively in the newspapers. And then it sort of faded into history. Um, I'm not sure how many people really thought about Bobby Bizzop over the years. But then, 60 years later, in 2018, new evidence surfaces, and Kevin makes a connection that no one had thought of before. I was doing research into a former Catholic priest in Colorado accused of molesting a couple of boys in the 1960s. And... Um, one of these young men had come to me with this story. The other one had actually committed suicide years earlier, but had um, left a long, detailed note about his allegations that he'd been molested by this priest. And the priest was still alive. He'd left the priesthood way back in 1980 and had gotten married, but he was still alive. He was living in Arizona at the time I was looking into this. And so I was just doing some basic research and I came across a newspaper story from 1959 about the discovery of Bobby Bizzop's remains. And it listed this priest, Neil Hewitt, as having been the one who found his remains and has and, and also as having been one of the people that led the search for Bobby the year before. I was just like, whoa, wait a minute. I'm looking at this priest accused of molesting two boys in the 1960s while he was in the priesthood. But before that, when he was a seminarian, he was a counselor at Camp St. Malo for years. And he was one of the last people to see this young man before he disappeared. And he was the one who uh, located his remains. And it just seemed, it, it just puzzled me that, um, that that could all be true. And it made me wonder if something else happened here, if this was some, something much more than a boy getting lost in the woods and dying in you know, bad weather conditions or whatever. And so I started looking into it more and I started digging into the history of the camp and figuring out how it worked. And um, interestingly enough, there were a million stories written about the camp uh, every summer in the Catholic newspaper in Denver, and those were all available. And I was able to piece together, you know, what the staff looked like every year and all that sort of thing. And eventually, a photographer and I traveled to Arizona to ask this former priest about the allegations that he'd molested these two boys for a story that we were doing. And so we were able to talk to him quite extensively on camera and captured him, first of all, uh, admitting to these two allegations of molestation from boys from the 1960s. And, uh, and I asked him about Bobby Bizzop. Let me ask you about one other thing and then I'll get out of your hair. Okay. When I was first looking into all this, I was looking through, you know, old newspaper articles and mm -hmm. stuff like that. And I came across stories about a, a boy named Bobby Bizzop that okay. uh, yeah. disappeared up at St. Malo. Yeah. And it sounded like you were helping helped with the search on that, yeah. and and well, I was a counselor up there at that time. Yeah. What do you remember about that? What do I remember? Yeah. And uh, he denied that he had uh, done anything uh, inappropriate with him. 
which is what you would expect. What was a little bit unusual was he issued that denial not because I asked him. He just sort of brought it up himself. Yeah, he disappeared. And, you know, I, I did not do anything to him. And he told us this story that seemed sort of strange, which was that he was running the snack bar at the camp, that Bobby had come to him for uh, to, to, to buy some candy, and that he had refused to sell him some candy because he thought he was eating too much candy. What I remember was, okay, I was, I was running, I guess you'd call it a snack bar at the time, at Zimal, and he came and he, he wanted, he wanted to, to buy, buy candy. And I, I thought, you know, it just he was, he was getting too much candy type of thing, and I said, no, I said, I don't think we ought to. And so he, he took off. He suggested that this was when Bobby disappeared. And it was like, well, that's completely at odds with the stories that were told back in 1958 by the camp uh, uh, officials when they were talking to reporters, which was that Bobby had been out fishing, he'd not come back for supper like he was supposed to, and he had vanished. Um, and so... That continued to pique my interest. Well, I spent a, spent the whole evening with a couple of other guys trying to find him, and we didn't find him. And then, then, it, then it ended up with, if I remember right, we, we never did find him till the next summer, way up high. You know, I recognized his his shirt is what it amounts to. I didn't see any anything else but that and the shirt was torn so at the time there were all these stories that he was out fishing and they told him to come in for dinner and he didn't come in is that is that not the exactly what happened uh they couldn't they couldn't find him for for supper yeah i know that and, and but it was you said it was after he wanted candy yeah you know it wasn't anything i don't think it was anything wrong with not giving him more candy but that's yeah. My primary focus for a while, of course, was on the, the suggestions that this priest had molested these boys and by his own admission he had. We did a, a multi-part series on that, but I kept picking away at the story of Bobby Bizzop. And while all of this was going on, Colorado's attorney general had, had in cooperation with the Catholic Church in Colorado, uh, set up a process where a former U.S. attorney was going to review all of the church's records of sexual abuse involving priests going back to the nine, going back to 1950. At that point, Neil Hewitt, this priest I'd been looking into, had been credibly accused of molesting eight boys in the 1960s and 70s. Um, those investigators working on that for the attorney general had seen my stories about the two cases that I had looked into and they had actually gone to Arizona and Neil Hewitt had admitted to, to uh, those cases and a couple others they were aware of, but also admitted to them that at the time he disappeared, not only was Neil Hewitt a counselor there, but another priest named Harold Robert White was also a seminarian who was a counselor there. The worst of the worst. Uh, that report put out by the Colorado Attorney General termed him the most prolific clergy child sex abuser in Colorado history. He's got at least 70 known victims at this point, and, and suspicion is that he's got even more than that. 
60 years later, Kevin begins trying to track down anyone who may have been at the camp with Bobby all of those years ago. But I did track track down a couple of uh, National Park Service officials, including uh, one who was a, a you know a fairly high-ranking ranger at the time, and another one who was a 35-year you know seasonal employee. He would work at the at the park in the summers. He taught school in the, uh, during the school year and then worked at the park in the summers. And both of them, I, I reached I reached them by phone separately. They hadn't been in touch with each other for years and years, but both of them, when I told them why I was calling, were immediately. Um, suspicious and telling me that they had always been bothered by this case, that they had always wondered what really happened and so forth. And so um, we interviewed them. We tracked down Bobby's closest living relatives. His parents, um, you know, were deceased. His parents went to their graves, believing their only child died in this, you know, just tragic set of circumstances, but never had any idea that it might have been something more sinister than that. Kevin was able to find someone that has become a critical voice into the newly reopened investigation. We also tracked down a man named Richard Heaster, who turned out to be a really important um, source in this story. He's a uh, he's a counselor, um, a therapist, I guess you'd say. He lives in New Mexico, um, but he was uh, a boy at Camp St. Malo when Bobby Bizzup disappeared. And he saw Bobby Bizzup really upset and run off and believes that was the moment when Bobby vanished. He, he describes this scene where he and a bunch of other kids were in one of the camp buildings and, and Bobby came pushing his way through, obviously upset, pushing boys out of the way and, and sort of speaking unintelligibly and ran out the door. And he said his next memory is of the search going on. And so that sort of fits with the story that Neil Hewitt had had told us about him being upset and running off. Hewitt said it was because he had, you know, not sold him candy. Um, but Richard Heaster was important for, for more than just the fact that he was a, a boy at the camp when Bobby vanished. He was also the nephew and namesake of the priest who ran the camp, Father Richard Heaster. His, uh, the younger Heaster's father's brother was the camp director. You know, he has impeccable credentials to speak on this, and he was troubled by what we found. You know, we did our first series of stories, and in the meantime, a whole bunch of people had come forward to the state attorney general with more stories about being molested by Catholic priests in Colorado, and the attorney general in late 2020 released a supplemental report which named some more priests as having been credibly accused of molesting kids. And one of those priests that was named was also a counselor at the camp when Bobby vanished. And so now we've got three of the seminarians who are counselors at the camp when Bobby vanished, who went on to molest children while serving as priests in the Archdiocese of Denver. And so, um, you know, we reported that. It's, it's Again, it's just like... Uh, you know, it doesn't prove anything, but it's it's troubling. It's terribly troubling. Kevin and the investigative team at Nine News began running their series of stories looking into the Bobby Bizzup case. Dozens of people call in to tell stories of their experiences of being at Camp St. Malo. One person in particular calls in, claiming to have a disturbing piece of potential evidence. 
the most shocking thing happened, which was there was a man watching that special um, on TV, a man who lives in the Denver area, and he called the authorities a few days later to report that he had a skull in his basement that he believed was Bobby Bizzup's skull. And it's, it's uh, again, it's another dimension of the mystery because how he ended up with it is based on, you know, sort of the most reasonable explanation, which is this. His father was a, a medical doctor. He was a prominent Catholic. Um, he's mentioned in many, many articles in the Catholic newspaper. He and his wife were very active in the church, put on a lot of programs for uh, for um, parishioners and so forth. But his father was also really close friends with Father Richard Heaster, the camp director. They sang together in choirs. They'd known each other for a long time. Father Heaster had even performed this doctor's wedding. And so he had had this skull apparently for decades. And sometime before he died, which was around 1980, he had told his son, this may be the skull of a boy who disappeared from Camp St. Malo. And so the son had held on to it all of these years. And he didn't know the boy's name. He didn't know the, the circumstances. He didn't know when it happened. And, he, and he, he tells us that he had always wondered about it. And then he saw our special and said, oh, my God, this must be Bobby Bizzup's skull. So that was turned over to investigators. They ultimately exhumed Bobby's other remains to do a DNA comparison. Um, we're waiting to hear what those results were. It's really troubling because it suggests that after Bobby's remains were initially found, uh, the skull was discovered somewhere, maybe, maybe even in the same area where his other remains were found, and was given to the director of the camp and the director of the camp, instead of calling the authorities, instead of notifying Bobby's parents so that the skull could be interred with the rest of his remains at Fort Logan National Cemetery, apparently gave it to a friend of his who was a doctor who kept it in a paper bag in his house and, and then passed it on to his son who kept it in a paper bag in his house for decades. One thing is certain. As more information comes to light, it appears to create even more questions than answers. And some of what we found raises other questions. Let me give you an example. Bobby Bizzup's remains were discovered on a Friday. That's not in dispute. I mean, I can find articles in, in eight or nine newspapers that all say that, and all from interviews done with the camp director at a different time. But the report to the authorities that they'd been discovered was not made until the following Monday. So there was a three-day delay between the discovery of the remains and the time the director of the camp went and told the National Park Service that they had found these remains. And that delay is unexplained. And it's troubling. And like so many things with this case, it raises many, many more questions. This case confounds Kevin. For him, he remains hopeful. But due to the large amount of time that has passed, Kevin is worried that all of the questions investigators still have may never be fully answered. It just doesn't, none of this makes any sense. And unfortunately, with the passage of time and the death of so many people, uh, getting the final resolution of what happened may be, um, you know, next to impossible. But, um, you know, I would say this, Bobby Bizzup deserved better and his parents deserved better than what the authorities and the officials at that camp did back in the 1950s. Um, 
There was no thorough investigation. Nobody sat down, Neil Hewitt and the other counselors that were with him when the remains were found and questioned them in any detail. Um, Nobody interviewed, apparently, other kids who were at the camp to ask them what they saw and heard. It doesn't look like the counselor who made this report about um, Bobby, you know, telling Bobby to come in for supper was ever interviewed by authorities. And it's just, you know, it's frustrating now. I mean, the heartache for his parents, as described by uh, cousins who were older than Bobby and old enough to remember all this, it it was just devastating for them. And and they deserved a a thorough look at this. You know, I don't know where it's going to go. I think ultimately, sadly, it's probably going to be an unsatisfying answer, I think. The authorities are probably gonna gonna say that uh, you know that they don't know exactly what happened to him, but that they have a lot of questions about the official version of events as told by the church and law enforcement back in the 1950s. But we'll see. Um, we'll see. We're continuing to follow it. For True Crime Chronicles, I'm Will Johnson here with Reed Redmond and Spencer Brudig. Uh, Spencer, I remember hearing about this case a little bit, and I knew that we'd want to cover it. It had so many details, and it goes back so far, and it's just one of those cases, you know, you want to learn and read and find out more about. Uh, And then, of course, Kevin Vaughn did such a sensational job on this one. Obviously, investigative work that he's put a lot of time and effort into and uncovering some really dark crimes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that we've actually been talking about this case for quite a while. I've heard it in the background. And man, when this was kind of plopped in my lap, it was way crazier than I could have imagined. It has all sorts of interesting twists and turns to it. You know, Kevin made these connections where he was looking into a completely different case revolving sexual assault in the Catholic Archdiocese of Denver, and he recognized the name and he went back and, you know, actually interviewed this guy. I mean, it's incredible. Really, really impressive uh, investigative work from, from Kevin. Spencer, you mentioned all of the twists and turns in this case. I want to talk about that last twist, the discovery of this skull. And I think the obvious question here is, why on earth did it take a news report about the Bobby Bizup story for this guy to finally bring the skull he had to authorities? I mean, he had a human skull. You don't need to know whose skull it is to take it to the police. Do you have any other information that can, I don't know, help us make sense of what was going on there? That was definitely one of my first questions. I wish I could have talked to that guy that actually called in to report this skull. What I understand is the director of the camp had given this skull to his friend who was a medical doctor, and then the medical doctor gave it to this guy who is related to the medical doctor, and he's had it for um, many years in this brown paper bag. And I have no clue why when this guy got the skull, he didn't immediately call police. Maybe it was just some sort of, you know, oddity that he assumed was just something that, you know, old school doctors have. I have no clue. I don't have really any more information other than the kind of movement of how it got to this guy. But he obviously did the right thing. He heard about this case and had that kind of uh, inkling in his mind, hey, I should probably call and, and check to see if this has any relation. And and it very well may be. It is not yet con- confirmed that this is indeed the skull of Bobby, but they're currently testing it against um, his other remains to see if it, it is in fact this. And it, and it looks like it's going to be. Right. I wanted to just confirm that. And that's what Kevin says, that they exhumed the remains. And so DNA tests obviously have never been done before now. His remains were buried long, long ago. 
Right. And I think that there also were other bones missing. It's not like the complete skeleton was found without the head. I think that uh, that was one of the reasons why investigators at the time may have believed that it was, um, you know, that he had died from exposure or exhaustion. And then, you know, nature kind of took its course on the body, thinking that maybe animals had pulled the body apart. Um, and, and that may have led, been a factor in leading them to believe, you know, what they believed happened. But now um, the case may very well be reopened. Um, and, and they're going to, uh, potentially see if if modern science can can finally crack open uh, what happened to Bobby. All right, Spencer, thanks uh, again to Kevin Vaughn from KUSA in Denver, Colorado, bringing us the story this week, and of course to you, sir. Uh, I will be back next week. We will all be here, but I'll be uh, bringing our listeners a story from Texas and the case of a border agent who was murdered decades ago. We'll learn more about that next week right here on True Crime Chronicles. In the meantime, if you've been listening and you have forgotten the name of our new show that Reed and I will be uh, bringing to our listeners this week, uh, it's called Strangeville. So check it out when, uh, when, when that comes out and wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks to Reed Redmond, Spencer Brudig. We'll talk to you and we'll be back next week with a new case and a new story.